So uh, let's, let's jump into this. Um, the year was 2013, and an inexperienced um, climber, mountain climber, or a, you know, an inexperienced canyoneering um, adventurer named Aaron Ralston um, had a life and death situation happen to him. This was in the remote... Um, Blue John Canyon in Utah, I believe it's called. And uh, Aaron was 27 years old. He's an adventurous type, likes hiking and um, climbing and the great outdoors, kind of like Dora the Explorer. And uh, thank you. And um, <laughs> he, um, on, this, on this day, on this particular day, he decided that he wanted to do a solo canyoneering trip and as he descended into this particular remote part of this canyon through this very narrow pathway, um, something, well, he was very excited about it. It was, it was quite the adventure. He'd never done this before. He was kind of an amateur at doing this, not really uh, that experienced. And on this day, it, took, it was very exciting, but it took a, a, a dark turn for him. He accidentally managed to dislodge an 800-pound boulder that pinned his right arm against the canyon wall. It crushed his arm, and he was pinned and completely trapped. Realizing that he had no cell phone reception and nobody knew his location, he was in a really dire situation here. He, the, the hours turned into days. He was there for four days, hoping against hope that somebody would find him. He was rationing his water and his food supply. As each day passed, the chances of getting rescued were slimmer and slimmer. Dehydration and despair began to set in for Aaron. He faced the real possibility of death. He recorded on his phone messages for his family and his friends should his body ever be discovered. His, Aaron's story, and what would become of Aaron, we're going to pause his story there. It helps illustrate some of what we're going to look at today in God's Word. Uh, I'll get to the end of the resolution of his story at the end of the sermon, so stay tuned. You don't want to miss it. Um, we're in a the Real Jesus series, and uh, this series is a journey through the Gospel of Mark, so we'll turn to Mark chapter 1 in just a minute, and it will come up on the screen. We have Bibles in the pews. If you don't have a Bible, um, use that, and if you don't have one at home, then take that Bible home with you as a gift. Um, it's a best-selling book. Actually, it's the best-selling book, so you really should have one. It's sold more copies than any book ever, so you really, you really should have one, so please take it. It's our gift to you. Um, we must look at the Jesus of Scripture. It's only the Jesus that's been revealed to us in the Scripture. He's the one that can set us free, who can satisfy our hearts and heal our pain. So far in this, we're in week four now of this series. We've learned about the nature of the gospel, the true nature of the good news of what Jesus has come to do for us. We've learned um, about the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We learned about Jesus' baptism and all that meant. We learned a lot about Jesus' identity. And these are themes and things that are going to keep coming up as we travel and journey through the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. So let me 
uh, pray and then we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you broke into human history, that you are God come to us. And I pray that today you would help us uh, learn all the more what it is that you came to do, who you are, and that you would teach us, you would feed us. Lord, we're hungry for you. We need you. Lord, more than, we need, more than we need anything else. Lord, everything comes from you. And I pray you'd show us the way today. I pray you'd help us face the darkness, face the evil around us, Lord, in your power and your strength, just as you did. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verses 12 and 13 says this. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word. Now, the gospel writer Mark wants us to know immediately, immediately following Jesus' baptism, he is driven into, either on a moped or a motorcycle, I'm not sure, but he was driven into the wilderness I guess Jesus was the first survivor contend, you know, person, the original, the OG survivor, driven in, right following his baptism, driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. Now, Mark is a big fan of using the word immediately. If you read the Gospel of Mark, pay attention to this. He uses it a lot. He uses it roughly 40 times in the whole gospel. He's already used it several times, and he's going to continue to use the word immediately. Maybe he had ADHD. Maybe he is a type A personality kind of person, likes Red Bull. I don't know what his deal is. Um, give the guy a fidget spinner. He needs some help. Uh, he's very urgent about everything. Now, to understand this, we need to understand you know, why he's doing this, why everything is immediate. Why is it so urgent? Um, we need to understand the authorship of Mark a little bit. And it's believed that Mark was actually a guy called John Mark, John Mark is mentioned a few times in Scripture, and um, it, says, it says in the book of Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that um, a church would meet in the home of John Mark, and they believe that it was, it's the same person that wrote the gospel of Mark, and that Mark was actually companions with Peter, so they're buddies, they know each other, and that Mark is in Rome writing his gospel actually under the guidance of Peter. And so some theologians and some people refer to the Gospel of Mark as Peter's memoirs. You know, Peter obviously is an apostle, best, you know, one of the close, closest friends to Jesus. And so some people say that um, in the Gospel of Mark, it looks like the accounts that talk about Peter, they appear to be more vivid with more details as if the author had some more insight. They knew a little bit more about Peter's life and about who Peter was. So we're learning. So if you if you understand that, then then you understand you understand that that's the influence on Mark on John Mark, and then you understand a little bit about Peter. Maybe you begin to understand why everything's so immediate, why everything's so urgent. Because of all the disciples, Peter is probably the most emotional. Strong sense of urgency, you know, he's chopping off ears and uh, accidentally using Satan's talking points, you know. Uh, that, that, that's a reference to that one time he tells Jesus, like, no, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't suffer and die. And, uh, 
Uh, it's like Jesus says, calls him Satan, which is not nice. But uh, that's, a, that's an example of Jesus not being nice. That's a good example there. Uh, he was jumping off a boat, you know, kind of impulsive, you know. Cry, he's the kind of person who probably cried during the trailer of The Lion King or laugh at the end of, of Titanic. Or, you know, just he's all over the place, you know. He's an emotional guy. I think that Peter and John Mark are definitely in large part, they're trying to communicate to us just the general urgency that we have as Christians to get the message of Jesus out. And we need to feel this a lot more. We get complacent, we get comfortable. We need to feel the sense of excitement and importance that there's a world and we're surrounded by people that don't know this gospel. They don't know the message of Jesus. They don't know the grace of Jesus. They don't know what they're facing beyond this life. And there's, so there's a general sense that we need to get into the, the mindset of Mark saying, this happened immediately, and immediately after this, there was this, and how you have to imagine what it was like being in that time of how exciting it was, the different things that were happening in the ministry of Jesus, just God showing up on the scene and all this stuff changing, the revelation of God from heaven to us. Wonderful. But it's not just the general sense of the immediacy of the gospel. Um, we, we, we're they're trying to communicate to us something about the importance of Jesus immediately going from his baptism into a time of trial, into a 40-day period of prayer and fasting and temptation, facing evil directly. So we looked at this last week, the idea that Jesus' baptism was kind of like a coronation event, kind of like an, an inaugural event where Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit, filled with power from the Holy Spirit, just as kings in ancient times would have been, filled with the power, anointed with the, with the Spirit in order to rule and reign God's people, that Jesus, at his baptism, that's what's happening. This is his coronation event, that he's the new king of the kingdom of heaven that's coming, that's entering into the world. And instead of Jesus, instead of there being pomp and ceremony, of Jesus being crowned as the king and Jesus being anointed as king, instead of that, Jesus is immediately sent into obscurity, into isolation, and into danger. And Mark's the only gospel that says that he was with the wild animals. None of the other gospels mention that little detail. That's a, that's a, a, a unique detail in the gospel of Mark. I think that shows us some of the demonic nature of this wilderness experience. It's not just that Satan is there tempting him, but there's wild animals there as well. The wild part's important to it, that there is real danger for Jesus in this place. Him being driven by the Spirit into the wilderness is not an accident. It's not the result of like, you know, Jesus messed up somehow, and so this is the consequence. It's not that at all. This is, this is God's doing. Why is this happening? We have to understand something, that Jesus has to face the greatest threat head on, right? He has to overcome evil. He has to resist evil. He has to obey God in the face of the greatest temptations that exist. And of, of course, Mark doesn't mention it. Mark's very brief on these details, but we know from the other gospels, you know, there's three temptations of Jesus, right? And they were fine-tuned by Satan, who's the master tempter, master deceiver, to trick Jesus and to tempt Jesus into sin, 
This matters so much because without Jesus living a righteous life and resisting evil and staring evil in the face and saying no to it, seeing it for what it is, calling it out, without that, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross would be meaningless. It would be absolutely meaningless because Jesus' death is a substitution. It's my sinful life for his righteous life. It's, it's an exchange. None of us are good enough. None of us can make it to God, but Jesus is. But he had, he had to live out that righteous life. He had to get to the, the brink of, he had to be tested to the brink. Would he fail? Would the Son of God fail? Would he give in to evil in his human state, becoming a man, being like us in our human nature. He's still fully God, but he's also fully man. It's a mystery. But in that state, could he overcome evil? And this is spiritual warfare. This is a spiritual battle. Before you fight all the other battles in your life, you have to fight this battle first. You have to fight this battle first. The battle between good and evil, the, the, the battle that, that, that rages beneath all the other battles, which is the, the forces of darkness and the forces of light, colliding and fighting. Because we have to understand as Christians, anyone who takes the Bible seriously, we have to understand that behind everything, behind everything, behind lots of things, behind all kinds of people and all kinds of situations and all kinds of circumstances, there are demonic powers at work. They haven't gone anywhere since the time of the New Testament. Demonic powers at work. What are their purpose? Their purpose is to tempt people into sin. Their purpose is to lie and to manipulate and to deceive. Their purpose is to dethrone God. They want to take the place of God. They want glory. They want to control things. They want to be in charge of things. They, want, and they, are, they themselves are deceived. They think they can do it. They don't understand how powerful God is. They actually think that they can do this. They're, they're completely deceived themselves. This is the nature of What's happening, the influence, the, the, the spiritual influence happening behind all things at all times. There's an invisible spiritual realm that's at work. And when we're fooled by demonic powers, when they deceive us, they have power in our lives. When they tempt us and we fall into sin, well, that gives Satan power in our lives. And Jesus has come to dislodge that power. There's no neutral territory around. That's one of the things we have to understand. There's no neutral territory around. And so for God's kingdom to take territory, to be in our lives and to be in this world, for God's kingdom to advance, it has to displace the powers of darkness. And so Jesus, beginning his earthly ministry, has to go face to face, head on with Satan, straight towards the forces of darkness. And this is the age-old story, right? This is what all the best stories, all the best stories that have ever been written just tell this story over and over and again with just different variations, different characters, different, slightly different versions of it. This is the central story. It grips our hearts because deep down, it's been encoded into our nature to understand this fight between good and evil and how evil, we know evil is wrong even though we're tempted by it and we sometimes desire it or a lot of times desire it because we're deceived and we think it'll help us. We, but Jesus has come to face and to fight Satan head on. And so for Jesus to be successful, for him to build or to, to, to 
prove and to show himself uh, to be righteous, he has to face his greatest adversary. And that's, that's actually what Satan means. Satan is means adversary. That there is one who is adversarial against us, one who opposes us, who is out to destroy us and to harm us. And Jesus is saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and fight in the wilderness. Now, think about it like this. All kings or rulers, anyone who's going to be in charge of lots of people, they really should also be a warrior. What I mean by that is they should understand what it means to fight. And one reason for that is that if, if somebody in charge is going to send their own people, especially their own citizens, into battle, into war, they themselves should know what it means to actually have fought in a war to have risked their own life and to know the cost to, that it, you're asking of somebody to do that. They should, they should really, a king should really know that. Somebody in charge should really understand what's at stake here, what it takes to have actually fought some of their own battles and come through victorious in that way. Because the idea, the idea of somebody being in charge, a ruler who just gets their throne because they inherited it, because they were born into the right family, but they're not tested. They haven't had to fight evil. They haven't had to go into the wilderness. That's not the kind of leader that you can trust, that you want to follow, that you want to be in charge of things because they don't understand the sacrifice. They don't understand the nature of the fight. They don't understand the nature of evil. They, don't understand, they haven't stood on the brink and been tempted to the greatest point and been victorious over it. They haven't done that. And that's the kind of leader that we need. And so Jesus, this, this kind of journey, the journey in the wilderness, you know, people call it different things. One thing you could call it is the, the hero's journey, as it were. That's a phrase that people sometimes will call it. And Jesus has the greatest version of that. The greatest way that the hero's journey is, is depicted. And this is what makes somebody qualified to actually lead. The, the, the greater the role... And the greater the trust, well, the, the greater the trial they should have been through. And I think we should, as Christians, take this principle from Jesus being sent into the wilderness and we should apply it in our own lives and how we think about our own roles and responsibilities, but also how we think about those that we follow. That for ourselves, if there are greater roles we want, the greater the role, well, then the greater the, our, our temptations in the wilderness, our trials in the wilderness need to be the more willing we have to be to face those battles. I actually even, I even think I would, I would love it if even our elected officials, before they take office, don't you think this would be a good idea? We send them into the wilderness. I love this idea. Anyone who wants to be, you know, any, any future Chicago mayor or anyone... Uh, you know, governor of Illinois, whoever it might be, what it, however great, the, the greater the role, the longer the trial. <laughs> I think we'd have a lot less corruption, probably a lot less people in government as well. But It's the Spirit that sent Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit sent There seems to be no other way. There seems to be no other way to test the quality of, of what is in the heart of a person than to be sent by God into the wilderness. You see this happening 
with David in the Old Testament, King David. So he was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king, chosen from, you know, in opposition, in a sense, to all of his other brothers. He's like, oh, there's the one kid who's out in the field. Okay, we'll get him. But anointed, but then and no one really understood that he was anointed to be king at that moment. But it was 10 years on the run, in the wilderness. You read in the Psalms, David's experiences in, in the wilderness, in isolation, being hunted by a demonic kingly figure, a king who was, we're told directly, was demonized. There seems to be no other way. God intentionally using the wilderness, sending people to face evil directly. And the big lesson for us is, is that we can only be qualified for the, the public battles that God calls us to fight if we first pass the private battles that he wants us to fight. What do you do when no one's around? What do you do when there's no accountability structure? Because we like accountability structures. They're helpful. They're necessary. You've got to have them. You've got to have some structure, some policies. You've got to have that stuff. That's important. But you know what? People put too much emphasis on that stuff sometimes. They think that's going to solve everything. Well, if the human heart is distorted and broken, it will circumvent any accountability structure. It will always find a way around it. And you just know this because every law that's made, there's always a way around it. And so our private, we have to face, we have to overcome the battles in private in order to be successful in the public battles that God wants us to have. And if you're in the wilderness, don't resist it. If you're in a spiritual wilderness, you're in a spiritual desert, don't fight it, don't resist it. God did it. God did it. God did it. Just like God sent Israel into the wilderness for 40 years. And there's a parallel here, isn't there? Jesus in the, in the wilderness for 40 days, praying and fasting, being tempted. Israel in the Old Testament, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And again, you see this amazing, you see Jesus being the true son from heaven. So, so Israel, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was called during the exit, time of the Exodus, from heaven, God called them his son. They're my son, they're my offspring, I've cho- they're my chosen people. But now Jesus' baptism, Jesus is called son. This is my beloved son, Jesus. And then we see it in the wilderness here. Now Jesus is doing the same, he's going through the same trial and the same test, but rather than that generation that died in the wilderness, that was stubborn and gave into the temptations, gave into sin, Jesus is the one that's not gonna fail. He's the true Israel. He's the true son. He now represents Israel. He is Israel. He has become the solution to salvation. And anyone that places their faith in Jesus is then seen as Jesus. That's the wonderful, glorious thing. So if you ever feel crummy about yourself, God can't love me, God's against me, God hates me, God's gonna judge me, then you just haven't realized the most amazing truth ever that by putting your faith in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Sees all of the perfect righteousness that Jesus had before eternity, but then proved in his trials in this life that he lived on earth. Amazing, amazing. Our wilderness times, and we have seasons of the wilderness. Maybe you've been in the wilderness in the past. Maybe you're in a wilderness now. 
probably will be in a wilderness again in the future, they're from God. We have to learn to embrace them. We have to learn to pray and fast through them. We have to learn to accept them. We have to learn, how do I, how do I avoid the wild beasts, the wild animals? How do I resist evil? How do I still live righteously when I'm, when I'm at my weakest point, when I'm, I've got physical deprivation and I'm being tempted spiritually in ways that I, can, I feel like I can't even bear? I've got to learn to be humble because I'm in obscurity. People don't see me. People don't see you when you're in the wilderness, in your wilderness years. No one sees you because you're, you're by yourself. You're alone. No, no, no one sees us. We, when we're in the wilderness, and today, you know, it's, we had some great weather recently, right? It's been kind of a little paradise around here, and today's a little bit, it's a little bit of a gloomy Sunday. Maybe it's a wilderness Sunday. I don't know. We're in the wilderness today. But when you're in the wilderness, you have to learn to go without. You have to learn to go without food, without possessions. There are no possessions in the wilderness. You have to learn to go without a safety net. I could die here. Yeah. That's actually the, the, the true reality of the wilderness is you could die there. That's what happened to Israel in the Old Testament. They died. That generation died in the wilderness. Our hope sometimes is that our wilderness experiences... Well, shouldn't they, you know, they're just accidents or it's just punishment? Well, it could be. You know, sometimes there are things we have to repent of and that's why we're in the wilderness. We, sometimes it's not that. And the danger is when we're, ever, when we're in the wilderness and we're struggling, suffering, no one understands, we're isolated, obscure, alone. The danger is, is that we, we think something on the outside has to change. Something in my circumstances has to change. And that proves the blessing of God. That proves that God is for me and God is working. That proves it. You know, the right person's going to show up to rescue me. Or monetary security. I'm going to get enough money. I'm going to, you know, I desire romance. If I can be in a relationship, well, that's, that's the thing that's really going to mean something to me or it's going to validate me somehow or whatever it might be. There's all these things, you know, my career, it's going to take off. Or I'm going to be included with this group. These other people are going to recognize me. I'm going to have recognition. I'm going to have an opportunity. That's not the way out of the wilderness. That's what we think. We think, think something's going to parachute out of the sky and get me out of the wilderness. That's never how it works. That's never how it works. That, that hero's journey, Jesus is the greatest example of the hero that went into the wilderness and came out alive. His journey, it's a test of the heart to say, when I'm at my weakest point, will I choose good, which means to choose God, over evil, which means to choose evil, to choose Satan and demons. Yes, we need other people to stay strong. We need a community. God's made us. We're weak. We need each other, of course. And let's look out for each other. If we see someone struggling, let's be a voice of encouragement. Let's, let's help each other. Let's serve each other. And let's seek help when we need it, of course. But we've got to understand, at the greatest point of temptation, at the greatest point of trial, it is the disposition of your own heart that matters most. Because sometimes you can be surrounded by voices that will tell you the wrong thing. I mean, that happened to Job in the Old Testament, right? His friends, so-called friends, are telling him all the wrong stuff. At the point of greatest temptation and trial, 
It doesn't matter. And you can even be, your wilderness, you can still be surrounded by people, right? You understand that. Wilderness doesn't necessarily mean I'm physically alone. I can still be surrounded by people, but I feel isolated and alone because nobody understands what I'm going through. And that's part of one of the problems with the idea of representation is, right? Our culture likes to talk about representation a lot, a lot like I'm not represented. No one represents me. And the fact of the matter is nobody can represent you because nobody is you. There can be similarities. There can be some form of that. But at the end of the day, we go through the wilderness alone. We have to stand alone. We have to learn to stand in the, in the wilderness and in our darkest moment know, will I choose what is right and good? God invades the territory of the kingdom of darkness and he sends us into it. <laughs> he sends us into it as sheep amongst wolves. Don't be surprised by this. He doesn't want to destroy us. I mean, what, what did Peter, what did you say to Peter? He said, to Peter, he said, you know, Satan's asked, you know, basically Satan wants to destroy you. Satan's asked to s- sift you like wheat. And what did Jesus say? The most comforting words you could ever imagine. I'm praying for you, buddy. He said, I'm praying that you won't fail. Wow. Wow. I'm praying that you won't fail. We'll stay in the wilderness for as long as it takes for us to learn this lesson. We'll stay in the wilderness. Now, in God's graciousness and in God's wonderful provision, what do we see happening with Jesus here? The supernatural help. The supernatural help. Of course, the greatest help we have is from the Spirit of God Himself. The Spirit is with Jesus and has driven Him there. And He has, you know, the Holy Spirit is with Him. We too have the Holy Spirit with us. We have God with us. But more than that, it says angels were ministering to Him. This help from heaven. This help from heaven. Yes, we're alone in the wilderness in the sense that only we can face the trials that are in store for us. But we're not alone in that heaven is backing us up all the time. Uh, Do you know what angels really are? Do you know what they really are? Angels are called the host of heaven. Host means army. So angels are warriors. They fight. And so the angels are there. They're they're Jesus' secret service backup. They're helping to strengthen Jesus. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's strengthening Jesus. He's fasting. He's weak physically. He's praying. He's being tempted. He's being crushed by Satan. He's got these wild wild demonic beasts and animals around. He's just got his, he's just with his own thoughts. He's in this place of complete despair and isolation in in the wilderness, but he's got heaven's army backing him up. And that is, yes, we need to learn to be in community. Yes, we need to learn we need each other. Yes, we need to learn to help each other. But there is a greater lesson to learn that God is my greatest backup. The host of heaven, the army of heaven is my greatest backup because, you know, even, even our greatest ally, even our greatest friend can sometimes let us down. You might say, I've, I've, I've got a friend who's never let me down. Well, they're human, so there's a, give them the right opportunity, there's a chance they'd let you down. They may not want to, 
but they may. That's how it works. They're warriors. They're fighting. Now, for Christians at this time, you know, Mark's writing in Rome. He's writing to Romans in particular. I mean, he's writing to everyone, you know, because obviously anyone can read it, and we have it today. But he's particularly keeping uh, Gentile Romans in mind uh, that he's writing to. And at this time, um, there was enormous persecution against Christians. And so uh, Nero would basically... Um, gather up Christians, and some of the persecution they would do to Christians is they would throw them to wild animals in the Colosseum. And they'd be torn apart, torn limb from limb by these wild animals. And it's curious that Mark is the only gospel that tells us that when Jesus was in the wilderness that he faced wild animals. There's, a, there's an image here, there's a link here. Great comfort to Christians who are afraid of being sent into to die, to be torn apart by wild animals. Great comfort here in this picture of Jesus that Jesus went through the same thing. Jesus was attacked in the same way and there was an invisible army that was backing him up, the host of heaven. And whether, we don't know the day or hour that we're going to die. You know, I guess, you know, every, every, situation you get rescued from or every dire situation that you survive, you're like, I guess, you know, well, obviously that wasn't it. You know, I've got, God wants me to keep living. He's got more for me. And then, you know, the day that we, you know, bite the dust and we're like, ah, oh, that was it. That was God's plan. That's it. Now I'm in heaven. What comfort for these, these early Christians to know Jesus faced the same temptation and the same trial and the same danger that I face day in, day out, the same fears that I have. Now, we don't have persecution to that level in our country. We, we do have, you have that around the world. Christians greatly persecuted for their faith. But we still have a lot of pressure in our culture, don't we, as Christians? We're not being thrown to the wild animals, but, you know, there's a lot of pressure. Maybe there's pressure in your job to take on values that you don't agree with. There's pressure in our schools, a lot of pressure in schools, a lot of pressure in in corporations, in our communities, you know, to agree or go along with things that go against our conscience, go against the scripture, that there's pressure in that regard to dilute our faith or to give up on our faith or to deny our faith in certain ways. And that might be your wilderness. That might be some of the pressure you're facing You've got to understand this is a test. It's a test. God has sent you there to refine your heart, to see what is the quality of your heart. And will you stand for what is right and for truth? That's how Jesus fought. That's spiritual warfare. Jesus fought with the truth. Right? The lie comes, and that's the greatest test, is can I discern the twisting of the truth and will I speak the truth in opposition to the lie? even at the loss of my own life, that I might lose my life. Of course, you can't. If you're with Jesus, you can never lose your life. You understand that? You go on to glory with Jesus forever. So better, it's better, better to be there than here. Even if I lose my life for that, we've got to remember this. We've got a host of heaven backing us up. You plus God is a majority. You plus God is a majority. And we can see God do impossible things because we have the power of the Spirit with us 
And we have the host of heaven backing us up, backing us up. What happened to our canyoneering friend, Aaron Ralston? Actually, I made a mistake earlier on. It wasn't four days, it was five days. On his fifth day, in this dire situation, losing all hope, he made a fateful decision. Realizing that his arm, having been completely crushed and pinned for five days, was already dead, he decided to amputate it using a dull, multi-tool blade that he happened to have in his pocket. Now, that sacrifice saved his life. He was able to get out of the canyon, go back to help and get medical attention. And he's alive today, as far as I know. His harrowing experience, he survived this harrowing experience, but he had to lose something in the wilderness. He had to lose something. He had to literally cut his losses. And he had to, he had to understand what mattered most and face his own demons. I mean, you've got a literal illustration here of somebody mortifying their flesh. To mortify your flesh means I'm crucifying things in my own heart and own life that are tempting me to sin, things that are pulling me towards evil, things that are from Satan, that have power over me. I'm mortifying them. I'm cutting them off. I'm killing them. And this is, this, his story, his picture is a reminder to us of that hero's journey that you have to go into isolation, you have to go into the wilderness, and you have to face your greatest fear and your greatest demon, your greatest trial, and you have to be willing to lose the thing that's threatening to kill you. Even if it's the thing, some, something that you say, I, I don't want to ever give it up. If it's going to destroy you, you have to give it up. And of course, Jesus, Jesus, of course, exemplifies this way better. The Jesus the final wilderness that he went into was at Golgotha, the place of the skull, the cross, complete isolation. What did Jesus say on the cross? My, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you sent me into this wilderness? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you sent me here? Jesus didn't fail listen, we're going to be in the wilderness and we're going to fail. It's impossible not to fail. But you know what? That doesn't mean every wilderness trip you have to fail. You have to learn how to be victorious in every wilderness journey that you go on. Sometimes you do fail. You don't plan to fail. You don't want to fail. You don't make excuses for failing. But you say, I recognize I've got a God who, failed, who, who didn't fail, who succeeded in the greatest wilderness and therefore, because of him, he saved my soul. God wants us to die to ourselves, to be humble, to say goodbye to the things that have already died that we need to cut off anyway. And I feel like there's somebody here, and you know right now there's something in your life that's already died, but you're clinging on to it as if you need it. And you have to be ruthless. You have to get that blunt tool out. And you have to, it's painful, but you have to cut it off. And... The power is in understanding it's already dead. You look at it and you see it's already dead. 
but I'm just trying to hold on to it. Thank God that Jesus succeeded in the wilderness. Because Jesus succeeded in the wilderness, this gospel message has gone to the whole world. If Jesus had failed these temptations, we wouldn't be here today. The gospel message wouldn't have gone around the world, but thank God Jesus succeeded. He's worthy. He is the leader that has our greatest respect and honor because anything he asks us to do, we know he's faced worse. We know. He, he relates to our trials and our temptations and our struggles. Let's worship him. He so needs our worship.